0: I'm a member of the Order of Preachers, the Dominican Fathers, and I teach at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. This is the last lecture of a series on the subject of the Bible and Christian life, moral theology. In previous lectures, I've tried to show that A moral theology which is not based on the scriptures, as the scriptures are interpreted in the tradition of the church, cannot be a valid moral theology. We receive God's word through the scriptures and through tradition. And if we don't base our thinking about the Christian life on that, and with great fidelity, Uh, we will not have a sound understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. I then tried to show that in the scriptures, there are two intertwined elements. There is a permanent element, which holds for all time, of moral truth because we human beings are always human and because God's plan embraces the whole human race and the whole of human history. On the other hand, there is a historical element. The Bible was written at a certain time in a certain country by certain particular people inspired by the Holy Spirit and it was given to the church as its great treasure. There will not be a new revelation after Jesus Christ, who is the whole Word of God, in whom all that God has to say has been spoken. But Jesus Christ asked from the Father that He send the Holy Spirit on His church. And consequently, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, The church gains and grows in its understanding of the revelation that was given once for all. And it adapts this and applies this revelation to the changing circumstances of history. That's its mission. And we as Christians share in that mission. It's not easy always to distinguish between the permanent and the changing elements in the understanding of the church. It's a hard task. We all contribute to that growth in understanding through our Christian experience, through our study, through the insights that the Holy Spirit gives us. Every member of the church make some contribution to this progress in understanding God's revelation. But there has to be a final discrimination and judgment on what elements in this growing understanding are sound and what are not. And that has to be given by the teaching authority of the church, by the Bishop of Rome, our Holy Father, and by the bishops in communion with him, especially in ecumenical councils. They have the authority from God to take all the insights, all the discussion, all the study and experience of the Christian community as it moves through history and to sort out from that, those elements that are sound and permanent That's taking place in our day. The Second Council of the Vatican was a great event in which the Holy Spirit guided the church to gather together the accumulated study and experience of the last several hundred years and to try to find in it the message which is most suited to our times. It's true that after Vatican II, there has been much controversy and trouble over this. Confusion in the church. I think many wrong turns have been taken by some people. And sometimes we have lost sight of what the council was really saying. But that kind of confusion is inevitable. It has happened after every great event in the church. It's the kind of confusion that comes to us all when we're trying to study a hard subject. At first, we misunderstand it. It's only after we've had time to digest it that finally we see what our teacher has been telling us. And so it's gonna take a while for us to understand the real meaning of Vatican II. Fortunately, we also have the guidance of the Holy Father. And we're very fortunate at the moment to have a Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, who is a philosopher, a theologian, a man of great experience, who has traveled through the whole world, has seen the situation everywhere in the church, and who in a very wise and prudent way, with balance and care, is directing the church. When we look at Vatican II, the document, which is very helpful in this case, is the document called The Church in the Modern World. We can't think of Christian life simply as an individual matter. We do each have our individual responsibility before God, and we will be judged individually by God. But nevertheless, We cannot be saved by ourselves. We have to be saved as members of the church. And our mission is to the whole world. You can't, therefore, understand the Christian life simply in terms of the individual. You have to place the individual in the social and ecclesial context of the church and society in order to understand our particular vocation in life the kind of person we need to be as individuals in order to be a service to the common good. Ganymed spes is a prophetic document. I don't mean that it has some new revelation, but it's prophetic in the sense that we read in the New Testament that there continue to be in the early church prophets, men guided by the Holy Spirit who helped the church understand better what had been taught by Jesus. Vatican II was the assembly of all the bishops, praying to the Holy Spirit, and guided by the Holy Spirit in trying to understand our times, the needs of our times, the diseases of our times, the troubles of our times, and to find healing for it. And so in this lecture, I want to emphasize that fact, that we individuals, in trying to become perfect Christians, in trying to acquire the virtues I've been talking about of faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues that support them of temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence, we have to also to be social-minded, church-minded. We have to look at the broader perspective and to see our role in that broader perspective. Now, what did Vatican II in the document Church in the Modern World say about the modern world? Well, Pope John Paul II has often repeated the same thing that the Council taught in this matter, that there are positive elements and there are negative elements in our culture and our world. Positively, there has been an immense growth of scientific understanding. And with that has come a control over nature that was never before in the hands of human beings. When God created the world, He gave to Adam and Eve the task of as it's expressed in Genesis, of tending the garden. That is, to work in cooperation with the Creator in bringing the creation to its perfection. God's creation wasn't complete in the beginning because He put it also in the hands, our hands, as human beings, to bring it to its final perfection. That's what you do with a garden. A garden is something that has to be cultivated and brought to its full beauty. And so God has given us the earth for the same reason. Technology has made it possible for the first time in human history to do that. That is a positive element. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And along with that, I must emphasize this, the possibility of doing away with poverty The struggles in the world, the wars in the world, have largely been rooted in struggles for survival. The world has been very poor. The Garden of Eden had enough for everybody. But Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden into what was a kind of a desert. And the world has not supplied us in the past with enough that everyone could have all of their needs satisfied. Modern technology has made that possible if we would use technology properly. We have the possibility of doing away with poverty, and that never before was true in the history of the world. Sometimes people quote the words of Jesus, the poor you have with you always as if that was a prophecy that we have to have the poor with us always. It's not a prophecy, it's a warning, that if we don't do something about it, we will have the poor with us always. But God has given us the possibility of overcoming all of these evils, which are the result of sin and which can be overcome by grace. A second thing that is very positive in the modern world, and it goes along with the question of technology, is the forming of the world community. Modern communication for travel, the public media, have made it possible for the first time in history to reach every human being in the world. At last, the world is opened up to the gospel. That was never before true. At last, the mission of the church can be accomplished by bringing the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ to every human being. That is why Pope John Paul II has recently been talking and it's sort of surprised the press, I think, that he's talking in this vein, he keeps pointing to the fact that we are entering the third millennium. We have had 2,000 years since the time of Jesus Christ. The church has gone through many troubles and difficulties, but now we have a new opportunity, another 1,000 years opening before us. It's up to us what we make of that new 1,000 years. God is with us, and He wants us to use these two great opportunities to bring about peace and justice in the world and the universal preaching of the gospel. That's the positive aspect of our times. And I'm happy to say that the Eternal Word Network is an example of that. The message that comes over these programs goes to many people who before could never be reached, and it is the Word of God that is being preached to them. This is our positive opportunity. Vatican II, however, in the church in the modern world also pointed out the grave obstacles that stand in the way of the accomplishment of God's plan. The devil is still at work. Now, sometimes, you know, we think that our times are the worst of all times, and we get discouraged by that. I think when that happens, we ought to take out a book of church history and to see some of the terrible times that the church has had to go through before. There was a time when perhaps the majority of the Christians no longer believe that Jesus was God. That's what we call the Arian heresy, and it took place only 300 years after the time of Jesus. Most of the bishops, most of the Catholics had doubts that Jesus is God. They thought He's kind of a superman. We came through that. Then there was the period when the church was overwhelmed by the pagan invasions of Europe and by the invasion of the Muslims, of Islam. It looked like the church would go down again. The church survived. Then there was the time of the Reformation when it looked like the church was breaking up. There were all these quarrels and then religious wars, Christians killing Christians the church survived that. I forgot to mention the time when we had three popes and people were not sure who was the Holy Father, who was the head of the church. In the 19th century, not very long ago, the French Revolution, Napoleon, the spread of what we call the Enlightenment closed down all of the religious orders in many countries, forbade the teaching of the the Catholic religion in the schools, and the Holy Father became a prisoner of the Vatican. We survived that. So let us not be over-alarmed by the fact that the Church now has grave difficulties. Now is the time for that virtue of fortitude I talked about before. The courage to realize that the fight goes on and that the church will certainly triumph in the end, not by its own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't have a negative attitude toward our own period. We should see it as a time of opportunity but we need to be realistic about it. Courage doesn't mean that you don't see that there are great dangers, and there are great dangers. The Holy Father has mentioned some that has emphasized certain ones that are also in the Vatican II document. One of them is the growth of poverty. At the very time that we could overcome poverty, The third world seems to be becoming poorer and poorer. There's an even greater imbalance, a greater lack of social justice than many times in the past. That's increasing rather than decreasing. And every country he goes to, he emphasizes that to its government, that it is essential that we bring about justice for the poor. And part of that is caused by consumerism. The growth of modern wealth and modern technology has also produced consumerism. And the public media has contributed to that tremendously by making people think that buying this thing and buying that thing and buying something else is absolutely necessary to their life while nothing is said about the really important things of life, or very little, the environment is being destroyed by modern technology. That isn't something wrong with technology itself. It's wrong with the way we're using it. Pope John Paul II has emphasized that because the world was given to us in stewardship We not only have to use it, but we have to preserve it for the future, for the next generations. That's a grave responsibility. And we contribute to this destruction of the environment. And then recently he's been talking about the culture of death. That more and more in our world, there is a contempt for human life. Abortion is the gravest example of this perhaps we can get very excited about a death of a few public figures and terribly indignant when we read about the abuse of human rights in other countries while we are killing a million and a half infants in our country. And nobody seems to see that this is a terrible hypocrisy. But it's not only that, we see that war is continuing in many places in the world, and that although the threat of nuclear disaster has been removed a little bit, the existence of terrorism shows that it is not far off Then there is the general moral decay, the collapse of the family. And I don't believe I have to emphasize that too much to this audience, but it is a very grave difficulty that the family, which is the basis of social justice, the basis of human rights, the basis of the transmission of knowledge and especially of the gospel is in decay. Divorce, living together outside of wedlock, the growth of thinking that homosexuality and heterosexuality are equally open options for people, all of these things are causing a decay of family life. And finally, what is the gravest evil of all, and it's even greater than abortion, because if we could overcome this evil, abortion would be done away with in no time. And that is ignorance of the Word of God. Ignorance of the Word of God. The reason that abortion and all these other evils can flourish in our world is because people do not know that there is a loving God, that He has a plan for us, and that it is possible by the power of His Holy Spirit to live according to God's law. They don't know it. They have been blinded. In one way or another, they are blinded. You have only to look at most television programs to see that there is a gospel which is being preached and which is being heard for hours every day by our children and by a lot of the adults which is a gospel directly contrary to God's gospel. It's the devil's gospel. The gospel of impurity, of violence, of hatred and contempt, of denial of God, or what is perhaps even worse than denial, and that is total indifference to God. That is being preached. Now, that's what Vatican II told us about the world, the historical situation in which we are living today. God has called us to live not in the past. We can't live in the 13th century. We can't live in the early church. We have to live in the 20th century. And here is where our mission is and where we have to do our work for God. And so we have to understand these two sides, and we mustn't lose balanced view of it. We mustn't become pessimists and simply think of the negative, because if we do that, there will be no hope, and the great virtue of hope will disappear. And on the other hand, we have to be realists. That's where faith and prudence come in. We have to be realists and we have to have the courage to face the facts of our situation, then it is possible for us to move in the right direction. Sorry to say, since Vatican II, we have not all heard that message and put it into practice. As I said at the beginning of this lecture, it is perhaps inevitable that we were confused. The bishops of Vatican II worked out a program for our times, but they said very little about how this program would get to be known by Catholics and understood by Catholics. They didn't have the time, they were under pressures, and perhaps the time was not quite ripe yet to understand how this should be made meaningful and intelligible and credible to Catholics and then to the world itself. And so, in large part, Vatican II was reported by the secular media rather than carefully taught to our children and to ourselves. I know as a theologian, This event of Vatican II was (laughs) a very disturbing one. I was very happy over it. I was convinced that it was a great event and it was God speaking to us in our time because anyone who had taught in the period before Vatican II knew that we had many problems that we needed to meet, a great deal of updating to do, and yet, When it all came down, we had to say, well, now, what do I teach in class? What do I tell my students The Vatican II said? Then I began to find difficulties because among the learned theologians of the church, people with great credit who had been put in their positions as professors by the Holy Father himself, there was a lot of disagreement about this. So it was very puzzling, very puzzling. And we saw a certain division in the church which has lasted these 25 years. On the one hand, there are people who were terribly disturbed by the council, and particularly to the reaction to the council, and began to say, let's hold on. Let's not make any change. On the other hand, there were people who said, well, the council has made some changes, so we can make any changes we want. And of course, then the two interacted with each other. The liberals rushing ahead alarmed the conservatives. The conservatives drawing back made the liberals even more concerned about moving ahead. And so we have had troubles in the church. I have spoken about the confusion in the church that followed on Vatican II. This has been about many things, but especially about our Christian life. So now it's important that we think about the future. And I think you can see why we need those seven virtues that God endowed us with in baptism. The church has always needed them. The individual Catholic has always needed them. And we need them now, especially in our times of trouble and confusion. We need them in order not to get off the track. And we need them to carry forward the mission of the church with these great opportunities that I have spoken about. First of all, we need faith, and faith, as I indicated in the lecture on faith, is a real enlightenment of the mind. It is not just an obedience, it's a light. It is an obedience. We obey God, but it is a true light to our understanding. And so to meet the confusion of our time, we need to have a clear and certain faith, a faith that distinguishes between what is permanently true and essential, and those things that are merely a matter of history. John Paul II, at the request of the bishops, has tried to find a way to ensure that strengthening and clarity and illumination of faith. It is through two recent documents. One is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That Catechism, which really is simply Vatican II put into catechetical form because almost every item in the Catechism is documented from Vatican II itself or from some other church document which reinforces Vatican II. That catechism gives us a way in the middle of these many voices and theological controversy to transmit to our gift to ourselves first of all, and then transmit to future generations a balanced view of the Catholic tradition. After the council, a number of people tried to write catechisms. Some of these were rather good. They often had, were very good from a pedagogical point of view. And perhaps you remember the controversy over the Dutch catechism, which in some respects was very well done because it made a great use of Scripture in the way that I've been talking about. But it had a fatal flaw. It left out a number of things that are a part of our Catholic tradition. And it was necessary that it be amended. The Pope appointed a commission of cardinals in order to amend the Catechism. We have had other examples of that, of books that have been used to instruct the Catholic people that either left things out or glossed things over or emphasized certain points because of one theological point of view and did not put the same emphasis on other points that were favored by other theological views. Our faith is not theology. Theology is the work of learned men, but they do not have authority to give final teaching to the church. They serve the church by study, but they are not our guides in faith. And so the church had to produce for us a document, which is not an expression of particular theologies in the church but is an expression of the Catholic heritage. Now, in that, there are some things that are a matter of faith in the strictest sense of the term. There are other things which have never been pronounced by the Church as matters of faith, but they are part of our tradition, of the riches of our tradition. They fit in somehow, and in the course of time, we will understand better exactly how they fit in, but we don't want to lose them. And so the church has prepared the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a rich presentation of the Catholic tradition. That will give us a grounds for faith. And I think whether you are a liberal or a conservative in your opinion in the church, You ought to study the Catechism and ask yourself, am I leaving something out? Is my emphasis one-sided? We have to take the warning of the Gospel itself, what happened to the Pharisees. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were very religious, very zealous. He says, You sit on the chair of Moses, and people ought to listen to you. They were the theologians of their time. But Jesus also said to them, You're not giving the right emphasis. You're emphasizing the wrong things. You're not putting your emphasis on the weightier things of the law. And so both liberals and conservatives should study the catechism to see if their version of Catholicism is really in accord with the tradition of the church and has real balance to it. And as we do that, as we study together on this, I think we will come together in a more united understanding of our faith. With that is required prudence. Prudence enables us to make proper discriminations, to think about what we are going to do, to see the dangers, to see the opportunities. It's not just caution, it's also courage. Ability to take the risk necessary to try some new things. I think that's significance of the doctrine, the splendor of truth which John Paul II has recently issued. The third part of the Catechism is specifically about Christian life, life in Christ. It goes through the Ten Commandments, but before going through the Ten Commandments, it gives us some general principles drawn from Scripture, drawn from tradition, of the sort that I have been trying to treat of in this lecture, which enable us to understand and apply the commandments of God to practical living. The Pope is trying to teach us prudence. One of the big sources of confusion in our life have been theologians who have tried to propose a new method of moral decision that has been called proportionalism. I think it was an honest attempt, but as John Paul II has pointed out, it was a mistaken attempt. These theologians tried to say, well, the way you make a moral decision is you balance the good aspects and the bad aspects. If it has more good aspects, then you do it. If it has more bad aspects, you don't do it. Well, that is inadequate because we already have from God some quite definite and concrete instruction that some things are always wrong. They're always disastrous. The Ten Commandments themselves tell us that certain things are utterly incompatible with the love of God. You don't balance good and bad in those things. You say, they're bad, we cannot do them. Then, after that, you have to make decisions not by a mere pragmatic balancing of good and evil, but by trying to find the good means, the valuable means that will lead us to our goal. And we also have much instruction in the scriptures and in tradition as to what those good means are. And so the splendor of truth is especially a document about Christian prudence. How do we make a good decision, and what are the mistaken ways of trying to make a good decision? We need then those two documents in order that we may have faith and the practical prudence the wisdom, in other words, to go through this confused period in which we are living, to find our way safely. We also need hope, and I've already stressed that, that if we're too pessimistic, too negative, if we see our times simply as times of confusion and don't see them as times of opportunity, And don't see that there is a sure road through all this and that we have a mission. We are going to sit back and do nothing. Negativism, as such, is harmful to the Christian church and to our own life. It's a kind of depression that keeps us from doing any good. And so we need hope. But that hope, if it's going to be effective, requires moderation and courage. Moderation, because if we don't discipline ourselves by prayer and fasting, as it says in the New Testament, by prayer and fasting, by Christian asceticism, by a regaining of Christian chastity in marriage, by a regaining of a spirit of poverty with regard to the use of material goods. If we don't regain that, then secular life will carry us away. That is one of the great sources of our present confusion, I believe. Because there are so many attractive things in worldly life that many people think, well, the church has got to modernize and adapt itself to this situation so that we can live in comfort. So we don't have to discipline ourselves any longer. We don't have to make sacrifices. We need therefore to be temperate, disciplined, ascetic if we are going to be true to our faith. St. Paul says that in his mission as preacher, he had to chastise his body lest he become a castaway." That's true of all of us. We will fall away from the faith if we don't practice the Christian discipline that has enabled the church to survive. And we have to have courage, courage to speak the truth, but also courage to try to find ways to express the truth and to explain it to people so that they can understand it. It's a serious mistake to think that everybody who doesn't think with the Pope is therefore a person of bad will. It's not true. Many people who dissent from the truth, dissent from the truth, because they don't understand the truth. They would accept it if they understood it, but they have a distorted idea of what is being said. You have only to look at the media to see how often the media distorts the statements of the Holy Father. If the Holy Father really talked the way that sometimes you get the impression of in the media, who would want to believe him? If he's just a man who goes around and condemns this, condemns that, if you don't see what he's really saying and understand what he's saying, then it becomes difficult to accept his teaching. Christianity has to be made credible to people. We have to be able to give reasons for the faith that is in us and to make the faith attractive to people. Attractive to what is deepest in them, not in the way of a commercial sale, but by an appeal to those things that are deepest in the human heart. And so we have to have courage to do that. It's a very, very hard task. Perhaps it's the hardest thing to do. To have the courage to keep patiently teaching day after day, year after year, until the message gets through. It's very hard. Remember that the two apostles, James and John, said to Jesus, when Jesus had been preaching in a city and the city had rejected his teaching, as they walked outside, James and John said to Jesus, call down fire from heaven to destroy these people. Jesus rebuked them. We can't just call down condemnations. We have to preach as St. Paul did, trying to reach the hearts of people. And so we need courage. And finally, we need love. The only thing that overcomes divisions when people see things differently and they are suspicious of each other is love. Soon after the New Testament was written, one of the earliest documents that we have in the church are the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius was the bishop of that city where both Peter and Paul had been, and he was condemned to death by the Roman government. He was traveling to Rome to be martyred, where Peter and Paul had been martyred not long before him. He knew what was ahead of him. And he wrote letters to the different churches through which he passed. There are churches that St. Paul and probably St. John the Evangelist had preached in. They're the very cradle of Christianity or near to such cities. And he wrote these letters to them to encourage them in this time of persecution. And what does he say in those letters? There is one constant theme. The theme is love. Love your fellow Christians. That's the only way the church can survive. Love your fellow Christians. Now, not all of those fellow Christians were good Christians. And not all of them had the right understanding of the faith, they didn't. But he th- says, love one another, as Saint John the Apostle says in his Gospel, in his letters, love one another. And in your love, stick with your bishop. He has been appointed by Christ to be the unifying element in the local church stick with your bishop it doesn't mean that all bishops were doing their job there have been plenty of bad bishops in history as there have been some bad popes who didn't do their job who neglected it were untrue to it and yet because of their office because of their authority they remain the center of unity for the local church. And he was going to Rome, where Peter and Paul had died, and where the Bishop of Rome was to be the successor of Saint Peter, the bishop heading the church. All the other bishops must be in communion with the Pope in order to be in communion with one another. That's what Vatican II meant by collegiality. The pope does not act simply alone. He acts as the head of the college of bishops. As Christ was head of the apostles, and Christ acted with the apostles, he gave them a share in his work. And they were weak men. The council of the church, like Vatican II, is the bishops meeting with the Pope as their head and giving to the church an example of charity, of love. Vatican II was a great example of love. There was tremendous unity in spite of differences, but tremendous unity in Vatican II. And in the writing of the Catholic Catechism, The Catholic Catechism was drafted by bishops at the Holy Father's request, and then sent to all the bishops in the world. It doesn't express just the mind of John Paul II. It expresses the agreement of the Catholic bishops of the world with John Paul II, the bishops in union with the successor of St. Peter. It is that unity in the church which is a unity, first of all, of charity. Well, I'd better say of faith and hope and charity because the three things are inseparable. But there cannot be a living faith without charity and without hope for the future. And so in the local church, in the diocese, in the parish, There must be similar charity and working for unity. If we don't have perfect unity, we must in charity work for unity. We must dialogue, explain, teach until confusions are overcome and unity is achieved. And that unity must not only be among Catholics, John Paul II constantly emphasizes ecumenism, has just recently told us that the next century must be the century of the reunion of the church. And in fact, he tells us to hope that at the beginning of the next millennium, we will already have union of the church, of all the churches of the baptized, so that we can carry on the mission of the church to the whole world in the opportunity that is open to us. That is a superhuman task. We can't do it except through the power of the Spirit who's poured forth in our hearts. Insofar as we have that unity, we are the communion of saints that we mention in the Creed. The New Testament and the whole of the scriptures ends with the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation itself ends with the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem descending on earth. The thing that we pray for, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it compares this to a bride coming to meet her husband, to meet Christ. The church, which has become global, worldwide, embracing everyone who is willing to accept it, is the bride of Christ. And they will be united in the eternal wedding banquet. That is the vision of hope that we have to keep before us if we don't have that vision and don't see it as realistic and practical for our times, something that we can work on, we will not be real Christians. The formation of our own character depends on our seeing ourselves not just as this person looking for heaven, that person looking for heaven, but as the church the community of all those who follow Christ, working together with each other to arrive at heaven. That is what we call spirituality. Today, there are a lot of things called spirituality. A lot of them are false spirituality. The true spirituality, however, are these seven virtues that I've been talking about, faith, hope, and charity, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by which we are able to take these virtues and use them in a truly effective way in our life, in our family, and for the good of the community, for the union of the church, and for the good of the world, the salvation of the world. That is real Christian spirituality. Anything less than that is not enough. It is to that that Vatican II was calling us. It's to that that the Pope with the bishops are calling us now. It's that to which all those who are trying to spread the faith and to spread it as it is taught by the Church are trying to serve. Let us be among those. If we are not, then we are not realizing the mission that God has given us. We are not responding to His love, that infinite love which draws us to Him. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.